0: My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form.
1: We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done, and here we are now.
0: Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely.
1: Never before in American history,
0: Has there been an uprising like this?
1: Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters.
0: The 21st century is going to be the American century because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. With Russia amassing more and more troops and equipment at the border with Ukraine, some experts believe it's a matter of when not if aggressive action will take place. Today we ask what Marion's insiders in Washington believe will happen and what kind of risk does the situation pose for President Biden and other more volatile situations around the world. You're very welcome to another episode of An Irishman in America with me, Jonathan Regan, and as always BBC NPR Guardian and Today FM contributor, the Sunday Business Post legend, US correspondent my friend and yours Marion McKeown. will also take a look at the impact of Stephen Byers' announcement that he will retire from the Supreme Court. Stepping down is so rare. The question is whether He was pushed. Who will replace him? And will Mitch McConnell and his crew attempt to obstruct it? We will also talk about the riveting trial of Michael Aventi and the gift that keeps on giving Sarah Palin as she left New York in a state of spluttering fury. Those were your words, Marion. I love that term (laughs) uh, this week. We have so much to get into. Uh, We should obviously start with the Ukraine.
1: Yeah, I think so. Who? Where to? Where to start there? I I think first of all, obviously, it's the um the implications for Biden from an American perspective. He cannot afford to screw this up. He's had, you know, Biden came to the presidency with this sort of self-styled image of himself as this great international statesman that he mm. had in his forty odd years in the Senate been on the Foreign Relations Committee. He understood international relations. He was was wrong on a whole bunch of things about international relations as it happened. But he really did believe, and as a vice president, he was a globe-trotting representative and he got on with foreign leaders, etc., etc. Now, he was only in the door, as we know, a couple of months, well, it was August, I suppose, uh, when he had a really big blunder. Not in the fact that he withdrew U.S. troops from Afghanistan, because that was something Americans, by and large, supported, but how he did it in a, a manner that was both high-handed and bungled and naive and short-sighted and, and very stubborn and bullheaded as well, and and really, really backfired very badly against him. And then, of course, he had shortly after that... the. Absolute own goal blunder when he entered the the um, deal with the uh, UK and Australia and cut France out and and scuttled France's submarine deal with Australia in the process. And you know this was like you know they were kind of like suddenly Trump wasn't looking that bad and that was some that everybody thought Biden would be fine on the international arena, but uh, he he really did have two big own goals there, and he hasn't really recovered. I think still his standing with the Allies, that they're in a bit of a wait-and-see, the jury's out space now. So neither there's an old saying in America that foreign policy will never win you an election but it can certainly lose you one and it's kind of true because Americans by and large don't really care about foreign policy until you screw it up Mm. you know until you have a a bay of pigs or a blunder and so Biden is under immense pressure to make sure that he handles this properly but the thing is how do you handle this properly and I think that that's the big question here that we need to look at.
0: Things escalated over the last 24 hours when uh, President Joe Biden said he would consider personal sanctions on Vladimir Putin if Russia invades Ukraine. Is this just the playbook, Marion, or is that real? I mean, last night, according to everyone's secret favorite news outlet, the Daily Mail, 24 Russian diplomats <laughs> were kicked out of Washington. I mean, that has to be a stunt
1: you know that is that, that's something that i would still have to even confirm independently i think the thing the, the thing that um we need to look at i suppose is what are biden's options now he has got a solid secretary of state with anthony blinken america will not go to war. America will not put troops in the Ukraine. It just won't. There's no appetite for it in America. Biden doesn't want to do it. You know, he spoke about having 8,500 troops on high alert, to which Putin, you, you kind of have to laugh at the brass neck of him almost, went, oh my God, how could you? How could you do such a thing? While he has amassed 127,000 troops yeah. on the Ukrainian border, some of them in Belarus as well. So Biden's saying, I'm going to put troops on alert. It's nothing. It's just, you know, it means what it says. It doesn't. But, but uh, they want to do a mixture of the sort of the stick and the stick. But but it, it will not be America, as I say, will not put troops in the ground in Ukraine. And that that is an starter. But given that Putin knows that, how much leverage do they have? Now, I think that, yeah, personal sanctions against Putin, I think that that would sting because the thing is America's econ or I beg your pardon, Russia's economy, is, for want of a better expression, in the toilet. They have no money. If The country is is a basket case, an economic basket case. Putin, on the other hand, as we all know, has plenty of money. And I think that anything that threatened the, the billions that he has accumulated over the years might might focus his mind a little bit. But I think that he is playing this game and You know, it is the old the creaky door that gets the oil, that even if he had no intention of ever invading Ukraine, which some people in in Washington think is the case, they think that he's beating this drum to get attention, to reassert himself on the global stage as a player, just because he can really make people sit up and pay attention to him when he chooses. But, you know, I spoke with one of the people I speak to who's who's a, a veteran military guy, and he said... 127,000 troops, even if they all go into Ukraine in the morning, isn't enough to actually invade and control the Ukraine. He said it will do a lot of damage. It would cause countless lives and destruction to be lost, etc. But that he he said he would probably need close to 300,000 troops in Ukraine to actually invade the country and take control of the country. Now, that would come at a massive cost to Russia. And it just hasn't got the money in the Treasury to do that. But but as I say, at the moment... He's kind of got the best of both worlds in that he hasn't had to really spend any money. About 40% of Russia's troops are now deployed in the Ukraine region, including in in Belarus, which is, you know, some of them are only about 100 miles from Kiev, which is obviously really worrying for the Ukrainian government. But they seem quite happy at the moment with what Biden's doing that they're taking this really seriously. They're absolutely saying, you know, Ukraine is a sovereign state. It has the right to join NATO should it so choose to do so. And no Mr. Putin, there's no frigging way that we're going to say we'll never let Ukraine join NATO just because you're beating your drum in, in Moscow. And so I think that the Ukrainians seem happy that NATO's taking it seriously, that Americans taking America and Biden is taking it seriously. But nobody really knows what's going on in Putin's mind and what his next move will be because you know. And I think there's also, and this was said to me almost as an aside by by. Uh, somebody again in Washington that I speak to, who who is a very well-versed in military matters. And he said that, of course, that if Putin overplays his hand here, there is a chance that he could be overthrown. And, you know, kind of wouldn't that be nice? That, that if Putin decides to go into the Ukraine and to spend the little bit of treasure that Russia has left and end with lots of Russian troops being killed and Russia being bankrupted for this adventure. Well, then Putin, you know, how safe and secure is he as president at that stage if the Russians just feel, you know, we've had enough of this crap. But a lot of Russians do support, you know, Putin's thing that the Warsaw Pact should never have been ended, that the Soviet Union should never have been dismantled. And his moves, even if they are sort of a bit of a pipe dream to get it all back together again, that that a lot of Russians, I think, support that. But again, the Ukrainians um, seem that they will fight and they've said they will fight their last soldier to push back Russia. But, you know, things happen like NATO when, when um, Putin annexed Crimea, there was a lot of, you know, smoke and huffing and puffing, but effectively NATO did nothing. And NATO is not all on the same page on this, despite what they're saying. You know, Germany's getting 40% of its natural gas from Russia. It doesn't want to antagonize Putin too much. Uh, you know, you've Russia now talking about, well, we'll send 5,000 5, helmets. Well, you know, pulley for Germany. Like, I suspect that the Ukrainians will need an awful lot more than that if Russia does decide to invade. But I think at the moment, it's it's that kind of a wait and see that you know, America wants to be seen as a leader here. Biden wants to be seen as in command. They want to push diplomacy while making it clear there will be really severe consequences for Russia if they do invade. But aside from sanctions, which probably would be crippling um, and and they would certainly do their damnedest to make sure they were, is that enough if, if Putin decides... If he's determined to invade, you know, is that going to stop him? But is he even, and this is what keeps coming up in Washington, is he even determined to invade? Or is this all just a show? Is this all, you know, to show that he can make, he can, you know, really give the rattles to America and to NATO when he chooses to do so, and that it does make it seem like his muscles are flexed. And also then, Gerald, you have to remember that NATO is, you know, and it, it became clear while while Trump was president that there are cracks in, in in NATO. And Macron said, I think it was in 2019, that NATO was brain dead, basically, and that it wasn't, you know, um, really all that united in its purpose. And this Article 5 all for one and one for all you know if you test that for example when turkey invaded syria um not invaded but when it sent its troops in into syria if syria had attacked turkey would nato really have rallied to um you know protect turkey and and you know it's 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 an untested thing but i think mainly if you look at the number of countries that have joined nato since now, ninety seven or thereabouts. They've all been Eastern European countries and along and a part of the former Soviet Union. That's what really has Putin's goat.
0: I want to ask more about about NATO and you know, this idea that Putin is kind of doing a Kanye West, that he has a new album coming out and he just wants a little bit of attention <laughs> on the on the main stage Sorry, uh, for a minute. Uh, but but before yeah. all that I want to remind everyone of this anymore and the only way to cope is to slow down so I think you have to be a bit more measured in your planning. For whatever reason age eight nine and ten is a pretty experimental time for lying they really push it see what they can how they can bend the truth seems to be like part of that stage of development really they've discovered lying how effective it can yeah. be used. I they want to see what they it. can get away with. And it's so hard because it's really tricky to uh, uh, to explain to them how much it hurts your feelings because, you know, when your child is lying and how do you get them to be honest without sharing them with all the Catholic guilt we were raised with? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what an effective tool that really oh, was. Oh, God, yeah. The ever watching eye. I mean, these kids have, are not afraid of us <laughs> ever. No. and. Yeah, I know. The lying is tough because I always find it really disrespectful. That's a little extract from the new Fort Lightly Irishman Abroad parenting podcast, Honey, You're Ruining Our Kid. Anonymously submit your questions and we will get our resident expert, Tina, to answer them. Tina is to child behavior and early learning what Marion McCone is to US politics. She has seen so much that nothing surprises her. And her take on what is going on is always insightful, based in straight talking, no nonsense language. It's often hilarious. It's a Patreon exclusive series for our supporters over on Patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad. Yet another benefit for just a five or a month. Come on over and start enjoying all our weekly episodes in full and the entire archive from the last eight years.
1: Honestly, I can think of no better woman, Jarlath, than than <laughs> Tina to set people straight as you say it in a no nonsense way with lots of nonsense. laughs. No, honestly. Well,
0: honestly, really. some of the questions we're receiving are really extraordinary and. Uh, really important that they get answered. So we're we're doing everything we can to make sure that while we do have the crack, that these questions are answered properly and where Tina can't help, we enlist the help needed to get you an answer. Because obviously, you know, as much as we've tension in Russia, there's a lot of tension in households at the moment. Over, you know, what's okay, what's not oh, okay, yeah. and you know the anxiety that even situations like Russia throw up for young people in a world where they don't really know what's up and what's down anymore. There's never really yeah. been a better time for not these chairs
1: of, of turmoil that that all kids have had. You know, and the uncertainty and the disruption. You know, it's 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 such a perfect time to be able to do something like this because god help them you know when you think of all these little kids and and how their lives were upended in so many ways with covid and just the anxiety about i know like even in our family the anxiety about you know grandparents getting sick and dying from covid and parents and and it's it's been a really tough two years for for our kids and i i i do think that notwithstanding their their resilience you know it, who would choose to be six or seven or eight or nine mm. at the moment, you know, homeschool, not be able to see the pals, not be able to see the grandparents. It's been tough.
0: Well, uh, I had a bit of a return to normality this week. I want to give a quick shout out to everybody that came to preview of my brand new stand up show in bits at the Bill Murray on uh, Wednesday night. Thank you, everyone of the listeners that showed up. I will, of course, be doing it at Leicester's Leicester Comedy Festival on February 4th with the brilliant John Mar doing support. We've put on on an early and a late show. So there are a few tickets made available now for that. If you're in the area, please do come down. But as far as, you know, the Kanye comparison and NATO here, like I did think about that comparison, I didn't just pluck that out of the air, because as you say, (laughs) there is a there's so much of US foreign policy and just international relations is chest puffing out. I mean, Vladimir Putin seems to exist in a constant state of peacocking. This is this seems to cross a line, though. I mean, obviously, there's there's the troops, but uh, he's obviously sending some sort of message around something. What would be the significance? Like, just break it down for people over... Ukraine joining NATO, like why would that be such a bad thing for him or something that he would be regard as unacceptable?
1: i think because ukraine shares such an extensive border with russia i think that that is is really the main reason and that he feels then that you would have nato troops right up against the russian border that they could, you know mean they they could let's say if if putin wanted to go off on some other adventure you know like the fact that the ukraine could that that they could amass as i said right up against the russian border they could be poised there could be who knows what installations could be put in that would be literally you know, as I said, o- overlooking mm. Russia, and not in a way that Sarah Palin mm. overlooks Russia. In a <laughs> way that would actually be feet away from Russia, and I, I think that, that that for Putin, is just considered a bridge too far. And as I said, like particularly for a guy who, who still thinks that you know the Warsaw Pact should be existing and that the Soviet Union should still be in play, and that, you know, it, it, it's. He's got very little to offer to the Russian people, as I said, considering the state of the economy and considering the state of Russia, other than the chest puffing, this kind of swagger. And, you know, we're still a global player. We're still tough guys. We can still make those Americans quake in their boots. And, I, I and you know, he, if you see, like, the, with the interference with the 2016 election, all the ways in which he's showing that he's a disruptor, that, you know, if he can't, join them, by God, he'll beat them, you know, and one way or the other, and, and that he'll he'll, you know, make life difficult for America in multiple different ways, and the, the Western allies as well. But, you know, Russia is really dependent on the money it's getting for natural gas and etc. from Europe and from Germany in particular. And it seems that you know, Putin is by no means a stupid man. He's obviously a man who's prepared to take risks and who really wants to reassert, as I said, swagger of the you know the nineteen eighties or whatever but um you know it to, to cut off I mean you know it's it's there would be enormous pressure on Germany from its NATO allies to say right you know what F- forget about this this oil deal that or the, the natural gas deal I beg your pardon that um if you invade Ukraine it's it's all off and they're already there's a lot of pressure interestingly in America from CEOs of natural gas companies in America who are now saying to Biden you see what's happening you see what's happening when you wouldn't let us lay down the pipe when you put the brakes on us mm. if we were allowed to go full tilt and um, we would not be able to give um, natural gas to germany and all of europe and they wouldn't need russia so there's a lot of of um, moving parts here i i think in this and you know, it's 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 also tricky on a another level for Biden because, of course, he's trying to to stop the dependency on on natural gas and, and fossil fuels. Whereas it it seems like there's a huge appetite, and from a security perspective, now it's being suggested that America really needs to to keep those um, spigots open and to keep laying those pipes. So, as I say, that it's when, wherever Putin can cause. Friction among the NATO allies, and I think he's probably gambling as well that this threatened incursion—and in fact, if there is an incursion—that that will really reveal. It's a gamble that that will reveal that NATO is only united in theory. That as soon as it faces a test, that it it will, you know, it 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 will not be seen to be made of the the stern stuff with which it currently appears to be made. And, you know, Biden talking about total unanimity, I can never say that word, mm. it, that that will be seen to be talk, basically. So I think if he can show that NATO is is not as watertight as it appears to be and not as resolute as it appears to be, and that, again, that Biden is a weak international statesman, kind of his work will be done to a degree, mm. you know, um, mm. in, in terms of... He, you know, he loves to to show the vulnerabilities in Western democracy and in Western unity. He did that very successfully with the U.S. election, twenty sixteen. You know, he he did it. You know that like he's, you know, he's a very smart guy. He didn't get to be head of of Russian intelligence for nothing, and and he is a strategic thinker. But he's also a gambler. As I said, we, we you know it'll be interesting to see. It, it, it there's no um, certainty in America, certainly among the people. The, the military and, and intelligence specialists, some think, as I say, that he just hasn't got the wherewithal to invade, that this is a big, big bluff. And others say, don't underestimate Putin, you know, you underestimate yeah. at your peril.
0: Well, we're really in the week of don't underestimate this guy uh, here in the UK as Boris Johnson clings on for dear life. I've n- never watched such a. Uh, a scene unfold here, Marianne, it, it does deserve a, a few minutes because it does impact uh, upon everything. This situation here, a police investigation into a sitting prime minister. Uh, and really the sense I get from the general public here yeah. is that he is still the man of the people. And that, in fact, his breaking the rules to a, a significant portion of the british public brings him even closer to their hearts because it says even Boris did what we were doing we don't have to feel as bad about the rules that we broke because come on prime minister was doing it too he didn't believe in the rules either that time was crazy and the analogy that i made this week uh, when i spoke about this on news talk was it's quite like the the january 6th committee People don't want to go back there. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to know it's a bit of a waste of time. Uh, And at the end of the day, the fans of Boris Johnson, he would have to like you say, commit a murder, and even then, he he could probably bumble his way out of it and say, oh, "I didn't." Nobody told me how guns work to uh, yeah. to get out of the situation. Is there any mention of that over in the U.S. this week?
1: You know, I think that the U.S. is is so sort of monomaniacal, especially when it comes to foreign coverage, that it hasn't got a whole lot of coverage. But again, I think we've spoken about this before, Jonathan. The parallels between Trump and Johnson, and I know Johnson seems like a more bumbling, benign version almost, but it's the same. Like I, I'll give you another example here. Just there is a large sector of the American public that feels that actually you go Putin, and uh, I mean, and by this I mean of Trump's base, and of course it's a. Tucker Carlson subscribers and audience and the, you know the fox news and the far right who actually are, are sympathetic to russia in the, in you know a way that is quite bizarre in the way that they were kind of going you go taliban you take back your country you show those women where their places you know there there is an american like the nra you know has, has connections with russia there there are a lot of there is common ground between you know these strong arm guys, and and not that I'm I'm putting Johnson in, the, in that package, but it's the same thing. Like it's like yeah, Boris, you know, you go break the rules. Yeah, you're like us. You know, you mm. show them, and and you know, Trump has that as well. That it doesn't matter what he does, it's almost makes him more of a cult figure when he got when he throws the two fingers up to mm. whatever mm. people are being asked to do or are supposed to do, and it's like yeah, you show them because there is this sort of. I think Johnson is also seen as a disruptor and there's this disruptor frenzy amongst people. They just want somebody to break the whole damn thing down. They don't really care about what it's going to be replaced with. And I, I do think that Johnson is seen in that kind of a the bad boy, you know, and he's uh, <laughs> it's hard to see the attraction mm. in the same way that it's hard to see the attraction with Trump, although Johnson, as I said, does seem more bumbling and benign. Trump seems like an altogether more malevolent, more. <laughs> well, I call, I call <laughs> Boris
0: Johnson the Jackie Healy Ray of British politics <laughs> because, you know, for all that's said about him, he is getting yep. things done down there in Kerry, yep. <laughs> and yep. you know that's kind of what got him to where he is today. And there's a there's a weird kind of affection for the chancellor here, the kind of uh, likely lad who comes good despite uh, everything that he's done. But in terms of replacements, and we are about to talk about replacements in the Supreme Court, it feels like, you know, Kirstarmer just isn't a known entity and as someone that has been spending like the last eight years attempting to become a known entity over here, I recognise how (laughs) hard it is to get a place in the hearts and minds of the British public. When it comes to the Supreme Court, though, Justice Stephen Breyer will retire, uh, according to widespread media reports on Wednesday. Uh, If confirmed uh, by the court, it will provide Joe Biden with the opportunity to fulfil a campaign pledge he made to nominate the first black woman judge to the bench. Marion, there must be a degree of excitement and trepidation around this.
1: Oh, I think that there's, I mean, it, there's excitement, absolutely, because, look, I think there's a big relief. Breyer, uh, last term, was very much like, whoa, 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 back off now, people, I'll go my own good time, because there was a real move amongst progressives and amongst a lot of even moderate and centrist Democrats to go to him, for Christ's sake, would you ever hang up your wig <laughs> or or whatever the equivalent is yeah. and, and let us put somebody else in, because Once the midterm comes, the midterms come in November. There's a really even amongst Democrats they believe that the Republicans will take back the Senate, and after that no judicial nominee of Biden's is going to pass. That'll be it. That'll be the death knell, and they will hold any seat open until 2024. They, they'll basically do what they did with Obama, and and uh, you know his, his and Merrick Garland back in 20 was that 2019? God, no 20 2016, early 2016. Uh, so the, there was a. Boots Bader Ginsburg, wonderful. I mean, just an icon and, and a hero to so many Americans. But she should have retired. And there was a real feeling amongst Democrats. She was very ill. And she really, and Obama met with her in 2013 and sort of, I think, very gently broached the subject because you can't tell a Supreme Court judges judge to, to get off the bench if you're a president. Yeah. you know. But it, it was broached. And she made it clear that she had plenty of work to do yet. And she was fine. And then she, of course, died, you know, and and in, in, in the last days of the Trump um, presidency, and he had Amy Coney Barrett in there in her seat within 30 days at jig speed, you know, and of course, Mitch McConnell, who had refused to let Obama replace Antonin Scalia back in February, suddenly decides that it's... because it was an election year, and he said, let the people decide in February 2016. Suddenly in October 2020, he thinks it's absolutely fine to replace um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And of course, it was... what they did was shameful. But now, Stephen Breyer, who who had been saying recently, oh no, there's no politics on the Supreme Court, and I think he got a real shock this year after he saw the way that the court... uh, the um, 6-3 majority, really dealt with so many things, you know, from Biden's vaccine mandate, where they just threw it out, to, of course, the Texan abortion law, the way they handled that was just appalling, where they really overrode the Constitution for purely political purposes. And I think he realised that actually... To his great disappointment, in fact, the the Supreme Court is a hugely political entity at the moment, and that if he didn't go now, that it could very well become a seven-two you know, conservative majority and and with, with all the consequences for America, which, you know, a lot of which would be pretty scary, I think. Now, so he's he's going to be gone. He's going to be gone by June. And that means that Biden can now get to work pretty well this week on picking a nominee. Uh, the, the front runner is Kitani Brown-Jackson, who is a, a, a U.S. circuit judge. She's seen as, she literally ticks every box. She's a brilliant woman. Um, she's a brilliant jurist. She clerked for Stephen Breyer, which is they they kind of like that continuity on on the Supreme Court and um, she she also worked as a public defender which I think Biden thinks is very important that you have a judge who has actually worked as a public defender who understands how you know poverty and social issues can conspire against poorer people and you know especially poor people who are charged with crimes and uh, so I think that she's probably one of the most likely. Another woman who is also very likely is a California Supreme Court judge, Justice Leandra Kruger, who is also another very, very brilliant woman. Uh, Stacey Abrams has a sister who's a circuit court judge in um, Georgia, who, you know, there's a real feeling, apart from the fact that she's a brilliant woman, that really Stacey Abrams, who herself would be no slouch on the Supreme Court, is somebody who... um, because you don't have to be a you know you, you in America you don't have to do the steps that we do in Ireland and England where you go up the court system. You can be, I, I don't know if I remember, it's George W. Bush tried to put his secretary on the Supreme Court. It didn't get very far, admittedly. But, but you know, I mean, it's, it's, as I say, it, it the route to the Supreme Court can be less conventional. But And then the other woman who is very favoured by James Clyburn, who, of course, Biden, a lot of people think owes his presidency to, is J. Michelle Childs. Now, she's a district court judge, so she's a step below the circuit court. I, you know, she's in the running. But my money, if I were going to put it on a, a judge, would be Katani Brown-Jackson. I think she'd be a terrific choice. But you know, Charles, what's so good about this is that the number of formidable black jurors in America, black female jurors, and they haven't gotten a look in. And it's only now that people are going, oh, my God, but this woman's brilliant and this woman's brilliant. And there was a lot of talk that Biden was pandering when he said back in a debate, when well, I think it was the second debate during the primaries, that, that he would nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court if he were elected president. But it's long overdue. And it's, you know, the Republicans are going, oh, affirmative action. It like it is not. There are so many, as I say, black women judges who are so worthy and, and would bring so much to the Supreme Court. I'm thrilled about. I think it's going to make a big difference. Now, it's not going to change the court, unfortunately, because no matter who is nominated and appointed, no matter how brilliant they are, there will still be a 6-3 conservative majority for the foreseeable future, unless a meteorite hits the Supreme Court and takes out a few people, or, or there's something absolutely unforeseen because for the moment the conservative republicans have a lock on the supreme court and could have for the next 20-25 years so you know it's it's that's why you know the supreme court is so important because judges last an awful lot longer than presidents and you know it was interestingly was suggested to me today by somebody else in washington that it might be quite convenient for Biden to appoint Kamala Harris. Now, it was said by a sceptic, but that because she, it would be, of course, like, and who wouldn't rather be a Supreme Court judge than a vice president? Kamala Harris is a jurist. She was the district attorney in, in San Francisco. She was the, you know, she she's, a, she's an accomplished lawyer and that in some ways it might actually leave the way open if Biden didn't decide to run in 2024 to bring in a new, vice president and who would then you know run instead because at the moment she's not seen as a strong contender should biden decide not to go for a second term so there're all these machinations and speculation and it's, it's actually all great fun because some of the theories they're intriguing like that one not that likely i'd say but intriguing nonetheless but there is so much to play for with these nominations but as i say in at the end of the day when it comes to the huge decisions that are coming down the pipeline, you know, um, about gun rights, about abortion rights, etc. That, that will be made in June. There will be no difference. It will still be a 6-3 conservative majority.
0: Well, Marian, thank you for that. Uh, and I, I know we've got to kind of rush onwards, but we've just got so much to get through. Uh, and I'm really keen to talk about Michael Avanti's trial. For people that don't know, he's a once prominent attorney who is now representing him himself at his latest criminal trial. It's a move that sets the stage for a confrontation with his former client, the adult filmmaker and actor who you may know of, Stormy Daniels, over her claim that he stole money she was owed for a book. Can you take us to the courtroom in Manhattan and explain what's happened this week exactly, Marianne?
1: This is well, it, it was postponed while the judge Jesse Berman and um, the presiding judge Avenatti decided he had this is an American story, like you almost couldn't make up this high flying massively successful lawyer who won some of the biggest class actions in American history this hard charging guy who I was at an event in god was it 2018 where he he was he putting himself forward as the only democrat who could beat Donald Trump in 2020 and you know to say like after he took on Stormy Daniels let's we'll go back Michael Michael Avenatti is a Californian lawyer as I say, he was hugely successful, won the biggest class actions in Californian legal history ever, won hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for clients in various lawsuits. You know, had a Ferrari, was a sports car, sports racer, like, you know, was kind of action man, like drove a private plane, was a skydiver, like you name it, and he was it. And, you know, sort of like, and he had the $10,000 Italian sharp suits, seemed to have it made, huge house, beautiful wife, the whole thing, like literally seemed to have had it made. Now, he took on a client uh, that we know was Stormy Daniels back. Um, goodness, she she had fallen out with her previous lawyer. And it was after Michael Avenatti took on Stormy Daniels and he revealed basically she had signed a non-disclosure agreement with Donald Trump because she had an affair with him while he was married to Melania Trump. I believe Melania Trump might have been pregnant or their son, Trump and Melania's son, Barron, was either quite a small baby. It was around that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Stormy Daniels and uh, Trump had an affair. And then Trump, there there was just before the election in October 2016, she entered into a hush money um, agreement where she was, I think, paid about $150,000. Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer and fixer, was the go-to guy on this. He fronted the money, etc. Now, he spent three years in prison for his part in it, or he received a three-year prison sentence, most of which he served and some of which he served at home because of COVID. And then, you know, it seemed like Avenatti had exposed Trump, he had disgraced him, he had humiliated him, and he was on every TV station. For months he was just never off, you know, cable news and he he was everywhere. He was photographed in Vanity Fair, and he was the guy that was touted as the only person that Trump was really afraid of. And as I say, he was a fantastic self-promoter. I remember being down on the border, and it was at the time that Trump's border policy was forcibly separating children from their parents and putting them in cages. It was one of the most distressing stories to this day I have ever covered. But I was down in McAllen in in that town and I was literally walking down the street to go to the Catholic Charities um, organization there, which was doing terrific work for migrants. And who strolls down the street except Michael Avenatti in his $10,000 suit. And he said to me, I, I spoke to him and we we had a chat and he said, oh, I'm here because I'm helping and I'm going to take this on, I'm going to sue Trump. And I was kind of looking at him thinking, this is crazy because he didn't have the legal expertise. He'd never done immigration law. And then he was showing me a letter that he got from some woman who was being held in a detention centre. He did go on TV with that same letter. And he, while he drew attention to it, he never did anything. He left the women that he promised to help effectively high and dry. But meanwhile, with Stormy Daniels, he also left her high and dry because he negotiated an $800,000 advance for her book, which was came out in September 2018. The book was called Full Disclosure, and indeed, it had all kinds of disclosures about Trump that I am sure he would far rather had never appeared in print. And you know, it was it was gold for late night comics. It gave them oh my god, they couldn't hide their glee in going through how she described Trump, how she described his physique, how she described every part of his anatomy. I mean, it it was you know you, you would almost feel sorry for him. There was nothing flattering about what she wrote about him, and. She did a tour and Stormy Daniels, it, 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 she's a really charming, engaging, funny, charismatic woman who had a very difficult life and and was, you know, you couldn't but like her. And, and, and anyway, so it, it, it turned out that Avenatti negotiated this $800,000 advance for her. But it turned out then that he... Told her literary agent to send the instalments to him instead of to her. Uh, The initial instalments were about $300,000, I believe, and it was to go to an account controlled by him. Now, the literary agent said, Sorry, I'll need clearance from Miss Daniels for that. And Avenatti forged her signature. So the money went into his account and he basically blew it on his Ferrari lease, on his other expenses, on his private planes, etc. etc. And when Daniels started asking why why, where were the payments? Why hadn't they come? He kept lying to her. She then got in touch with her publisher and uh, the publisher said, Well, I've paid that money, so basically Avenatti took it and he spent it and and left her high and dry and that is the action which is now being contested that that he defrauded her. He could receive up to 22 years in prison if he is convicted but he's now, he was so overextended and so reckless with money that he ended up basically indigent. He ended up in the Metropolitan Correctional Facility in Manhattan that has now been closed down. Now that he's bringing a separate $94 million lawsuit against the government for that because he claims that Bill Barr who was of course Trump's Attorney General was deliberately vindictive and that that was they were going after him and they wanted him to be remanded in custody when there was actually no need for him to be remanded in custody. And he's saying that the judge was biased, etc. It's a long shot legal action and he certainly won't get $94 million. But he's also involved in multiple other legal actions alleging fraud of all kinds. So anyway, in this immediate case, it's it's, um, back in court. He will be probably cross-examining Stormy Daniels in, who will take the witness stand very likely. He wants to ask her about, she claimed she was clairvoyant and she could get visions, etc. It sounds like he's out to get her and to ridicule her and to make her sound like that she is a a wacko person. But that doesn't matter because the fact is, what the jury has to decide is, as a matter of fact, did he steal her money? Mm. And it really seems the evidence is that he did. Now, he's also saying that he never misappropriated or mishandled her money and he's saying actually she received millions of dollars worth of legal services from me and she in fact owes me money. Well, that's not how it works. You know, presumably what he would have done which is what all lawyers in these situations do is he was working on a contingency fee basis where he would probably have been taking a sizable cut of any money that she made in exchange for giving her this free legal advice so you can't have it both ways you can't lie and mislead your client and forge her signature and then say yeah well you know your your legal fees would have cost millions of dollars anyway yeah, it doesn't because work as like i that. say it just doesn't work like that. So he's saying that he's innocent and this case should never have been filed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But, of course, it's, it's as I say, it's, to me, it's fascinating because I remember back in 16, 17, 18 and 19, you know, the profile that he had and the extent to which particularly the, you know, the, the CNNs and the MSNBCs fell over themselves to have him on the news every night because he was so like, you know, tough on Trump. And i say I do remember him being interviewed and going to the political conferences that I was attending where he was talking about himself as the next president. And you kind of thought, this guy is just a bit delusional. There's just there's there's something that's not quite right here. And I think that it, it has now come out that that, you know, notwithstanding that that Possibly, certainly, Bill Barr and and the Trump administration and the Department of Justice was certainly out to get him then. But he also um, was convicted in New York in February uh, last year, uh, no, fe- February twenty twenty. I beg your pardon, of ex- attempting to extort about twenty five million dollars from Nike by threatening that you know he was going to reveal expose them if they didn't pay him this money. He was sentenced last July, July twenty twenty one, to about I think it's two and a half years in prison, and he's supposed to go and serve that sentence, which is still outstanding in Oregon, uh, in a federal prison um, at, at some point. I think they've put off him serving the sentence until this case is, is re- resolved. He also managed to get off on technicality in another case in California, where he was accused of embezzling $10 million um, in settlement funds from various other clients, and at which he, like Stormy gills. this was money, that he won for clients in settlement cases, and he just spent it all himself—ten wow, million dollars. a
0: bit of a character so, they would call him. Uh, <laughs>
1: you would say a bit of a chancer, I think we might even yeah. we might even go. I, as I far
0: wonder as will going. he do a Cohen and go to prison and, like Cohen, write a write an audio book where he says, "I was a terrible guy. Uh, wait till you hear about this story. Yeah, but I wait to hear
1: about Trump. It's <laughs> think uh, bad.
0: there's definitely a hell of a book in there. It's
1: Such an American cautionary tale. You know, as I say, talk about the riches. And this was a guy who was riding so high on the legal hog for so long. And he is now, like, as I said, public defender in New York court until he decided, you know, the old saying uh, uh, what's the old saying about uh, if you represent yourself you have a fool for a lawyer, well we'll soon see.
0: (laughs) Well uh, there's one other case we need to get to and we're literally just out of time I'm obviously recording this early in the morning here in St Albans Marion's about to head to bed Uh, I've got a young fella in his uniform waiting to be brought to school, that's a little behind the curtain (laughs) insight into exactly how professional Irishmen abroad is
1: Hang on, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> a defamation lawsuit brought by the former U.S. vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin against the New York Times was delayed That's this right. week after she tested positive for COVID. I mean, Marion, this is another, as I say, the gift that keeps on giving. But <laughs> how angry were people in New York over this?
1: Well, you know what?
0: It's not, They were
1: angry in New York for two reasons. The main reason they were angry in New York and with good reason is Sarah Palin on Saturday night in New York, the trial was supposed to start on Monday, went to a very upscale kind of Upper East Side sort of celebrity rich person hangout called Elio's. And she, even though Sarah Palin literally the birds in the trees, the, the the creatures under rocks know that Sarah Palin is an anti-vaxxer and will never get vaccinated, no matter what. And yet in New York, there is a really strict law that says you cannot eat indoors in any restaurant without showing your vaccine card, you know, the, the card that proves yeah. or the little thing on your phone that you have been vaccinated and you're compliant. Now, Sarah Palin was able to swan on into Elio's and with no without showing any proof that she'd been vaccinated. And in fact, anybody who's ever heard her speak for two seconds knows she's an anti-vaxxer, and yet she was allowed in and she was at that point positive for Covid. So you can imagine that the other people who eat in Elio's a, you know, and, and this is a fancy restaurant, this isn't your local Denny's, were furious. They're just furious because it's like, how dare you allow like in her in? the
0: restaurant in the moment, they were furious.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, afterwards, when it transpired that she had eaten there without showing any proof of being vaccinated, because, of course, she's not vaccinated. And then, of course, it transpired that not only is she not vaccinated, but she's had COVID for the second time. And um, this is her second bout of COVID. And so the management have come out and said, oh, we're so sorry. It was an oversight. Well, you know, I doubt that that's going to satisfy too many of their local of their loyal patrons because really, you know, people who eat in there, if you go out in New York and, you know, people have vulnerabilities, they have, you know, they do not want to catch COVID and they're doing everything right and suddenly, not only is it sort of somebody's you know, quasi-celebrity uh, who breezes in without showing an anti-vax card, it's Sarah Palin who New Yorkers just love to hate. They love to, you know, this rube from Alaska comes, comes in and and contaminates them all, but also she's bringing a court case against the New York Times because they ran an editorial which suggested that, you know, her, basically, her carry-on and what she espouses was partially responsible for the, the mass shooting in Arizona in which six people died and Gabby Gifford, who was a Democratic politician, suffered a, an awful brain injury. So she's suing over that. She... She may have a slight case, I would say, because the, the editorial page editor did change the copy and and seemed to make a connection. And they did run a correction very, very quickly afterwards and an apology. But, you know, of course, she's going to love an opportunity to take a pot shot at The New York Times. So, as I say, this compounds that not only is she breathing in on vaccinating. Into New York and defiant and, and proud of her non-vax stance, but she's going to their restaurants. She's you know and, and and then she's turning up in courtrooms and demanding you know payment for, sort of New Yorkers regard as a pretty frivolous case. Mm. Um, but but anyway, you know as you say, she is the gift that all these years later. It's still it's, she. We first heard of Sarah, Sarah Palin back in 2007, 2008, and she's still turning up and she's still making headlines and she's still causing outrage.
0: It was One of the first jokes I did on RTE was on the panel about Sarah Palin. I, I'll never forget her <laughs> arrival on the scene. I mean, we have her to thank for so much great comedy over the years. Oh, my God. Uh, from yep. Tina Fey in particular. Uh, like it was a kind and of a am- glorious yep. golden age Saturday Night Live. We, <laughs> we could easily do another hour here, uh, Marion, you know, because there's so much news we this week. Include.
1: I, I know, can't, but can't I, I,
0: you know, yeah, go quick, ahead.
1: My two favorite. There was one sketch on Saturday Night Live, and I say to all the listeners, go and look at it, of a nine-month-pregnant Amy Poehler rapping with Sarah Palin was on the show at the time, and and they had a fake moose that they got shot on live stage. It was the most insane thing. That and Melissa McCarthy doing Sean Spicer were, to me, the, the two... The, the two Saturday Night Live sort of um, slots that, that are just all-time tasks and of course Matt Damon doing Brett Kavanaugh I say to all the listeners, if you've got a half hour and you want to just laugh yourself sick go and revisit those, you'll find them on YouTube
0: Get in touch with us, Irishman abroad podcast at gmail.com or use the WhatsApp the WhatsApp number is still there to get through to the Irishman abroad live line you can talk to Jar on WhatsApp oh, uh, just message us jar, <laughs> jar. <laughs> ping, ping <laughs> us a message through Marion, thanks so much, Brian Connolly's oh, on Sound. Teen and Mikey make it all possible. Mikey's got to go to school. Get so to school, <laughs> have school. a great weekend. We'll have Carl Frampton <laughs> as my guest on the big interview this Sunday. It's gonna be great. I'll talk to you then, Marion. Thanks a lot. All the best,
1: Charlotte. This is America. Don't get slipping though.